would, you'll know that these other things that I'm going to tell you about, when they come to pass, uh, they will also be uh, you know, just uh, massive things on the world stage. And he's speaking of the end times, and they were asking him about the sign of his coming. Again, going back to the servants that we looked at on Sunday, when will the kingdom of God show up? That's what the people were asking. They thought it was going to be then. Jesus said, no, there's going to be a period of time where I will be away, and, but then I'll return. But starting with uh, verse 3, now he sat, uh, Matthew 24, now he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And of course, this is happening now. It has been happening for 2,000 years. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Um, you think about in our lifetime, or people that are still alive now, we've got people that are alive right now uh, that were born, and you know they were uh, seeing all of the devastation of World War II, uh, but all the many wars that have taken place, smaller geographic wars. Uh, but Jesus said there will be wars, so not just rumors of war, hot wars, but also rumors of wars, always the tension of wars. And he said, um, for nation will rise again. Uh, you know, he goes on to say, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places, so diseases Nation against nation, it actually means ethnos or eth- ethnicity against ethnicity. We would see a rise in uh, people going back to original ethnic strifes and things like that that would actually uh, cross over national border lines. Some nations would remain at- intact, but others would actually kind of fall apart. And all these are the beginnings of sorrow, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will be offended, betray one another, and hate one another. Uh, we'll stop right there. I wanted to mainly look at um, uh, verses 6 uh, and 7, the wars and rumors of wars, because that's what we'll be focused on tonight. Now, so turn back to Ezekiel 38. And if you're here with us last week, you saw that there's this alliance, and then we'll, we'll review that for just a minute, uh, what that alliance looks like, not only for those of you here last week, but also those of you who may be joining this week. Um, so I'm not going to read verses 1 through 17. You'll have to go back and read that yourself when Gog and Magog, the nation that he is from or the land that he's from, galvanizes and pulls together this alliance of nations. And uh, I will say one thing in re- review before we read this. Remember that Gog and Magog, they are enticed by something in the land of Israel or uh, several somethings. It could be a combination of things. Uh, you know, I talked about um, you know the fact that today Russia or Magog, which we believe geographically fits, uh, is uh, you know ruled by um, Vladimir Putin as is their leader. And uh, I talked about how he just uh, took Bob Kraft's Super Bowl first Super Bowl ring and has never given it back. Uh, and you can look that up yourself. Uh, you can watch CNN interview him and things like that. Uh, but, you know, Israel, north, uh, in the Tel Aviv area, uh, one of the foremost diamond-cutting uh, regions of the world is in Israel. So they have some fantastic diamond cutters. So many of the, uh, the most uh, exquisite diamonds are cut there. And so he could not just take a ring or whoever... Gog may uh, be, they could take many diamond rings, and also uh, you have the natural gas deposits that we 
talked briefly about Leviathan was discovered in the Mediterranean just off the coast of Israel, the newly discovered oil, and of course the fact that Israel, uh, unlike all the other nations in the Middle East, is a breadbasket, being as small as the state of New Jersey, but produces so much flowers and milk and cattle and vegetables and fruit, and it's just uh, unbelievable. Which is the things that we saw in Ezekiel 37, 36 and 37, that the dead land would come back to life, that the land would give birth, but also the people would be revived, that there would be many uh, Jewish people coming back and returning to the land. And that's in th- chapter 36, that's in chapter 37. It's also here in chapter 38 where God tells us, and after many days, in the latter days, when you come back into the land, verse 8 of chapter 38. But I'm not reading all that text, but just by way of review, that Israel has to be replenished and in a restored mode, not a complete restoration, or not the glorious restoration, but significant restoration. So, uh, you know, we would see Israel blooming and living and producing, and all this is taking place, and at general peace at this time. Uh, when this attack takes place, Israel will be at a time of relative peace. So let's pick it up um, with verse 18. And it will come to pass at that time when Gog comes against the land of Israel. And remember, Gog is, is a title, like president or Caesar, right? Or emperor. Gog is a title that this particular leader has. Uh, in the Russian years back, they would have, you know, the, the uh, the Kaisers, you know, so you've got these different titles, but this is a title. When God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken surely, in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Now it appears that the earthquake starts in Israel. And if you do have, you know, three different continents all converging in that area, it's, it's a place that's had earthquakes down through the centuries uh, but uh, the earthquake seems to begin here, uh, but it's not just going to stay in Israel. So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the, ber- uh, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down. The steep place shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. The majority of this probably speaks uh, to Israel itself. There'll be intense, intense shaking and there and, and there in Israel, but also throughout the Middle East. But it seems to indicate well beyond the Middle East as well, because it says the men on the face of the earth shall quake. I will call for a sword against Gog. Again, the title of this leader. Uh, Throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God, every man's sword shall be against his brother. Uh, at some point they begin to turn on one another. I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Pick it up with uh, chapter 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh and Meshach and Tubal. Again, there's the title, and also called the prince of Rosh. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bring you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I'll kick, I'll knock the, the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I'll give you to the birds of the uh, birds of prey of every sort, and the beasts of the field, 
to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, even something happens back in the land of Magog. It says, I'll send fire on Magog. So uh, again, beyond the region of the Middle East, up in the far north, something's happening there as well, that God is sending fire on those lands. So I'll make my holy name known in the midst of the people of Israel. I will not let them profane my holy name any more than the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Surely it is coming, it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day which I have spoken. And those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers and the bows and the arrows and the javelins and the spears. And they will make fire with them for seven years. An interesting number. We'll come back to that. They'll set fire on them for seven years. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any of the forest because they will make fires with the weapons. They will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord. And we're going to stop right there. Um, we'll have to pick up the rest uh, next, uh, next week. But So we have here uh, God's telling us in advance Israel is in a relative place of peace and this conglomerate of nations, Gog, uh, with pride lifted up, is determined to take whatever the spoils of the land are or, or whatever is the motivating factors. We don't know exactly what God is using, but he says, I'll take hooks and draw you in. So it's, it's all based on the Lord's uh, design and plan to bring Gog down to the borders of Israel and, in fact, probably somewhat into the land of Israel, but where God will glorify his name. He will wreak great judgment and vengeance on his leader, but also all that are with him. So I want to kind of go through this again, uh, much different than what we do on Sundays, a little more of an academic approach. Uh, When you think about prophecy, you really do have to, uh, you have to study it. Back when I was, um, originally I was a broadcast journalism major, and uh, when I was working for Channel 7 News in Miami, um, I was doing investigative reporting, and uh, and you know, I'd have to do all kinds of research, and we were doing ones on uh, just different stories that we, uh, as a matter of fact, I remember sitting uh, in, the, in the Channel 7 News in vans with two-way mirrors, and we would be watching my boss would jump out and interview people and stuff like that, and, uh, but when it comes to investigative reporting, you have to do a lot of fact-finding. You've got to really pour through things. You've got to really do your homework. And when it comes to prophecy, you really got to study it. You, you, there's a lot of passages in Scripture that if you just take one view, you could have a very skewed view of things. But when we study prophecy, it's important to study the whole counsel of God. And uh, the other thing I know about prophecy, no matter how much you study it, no matter how much you look at it and think you understand it, time reveals to you hidden things you just couldn't figure out. And so over time, we'll understand uh, prophecy even more. But I think there's a lot that we can glean uh, for the times in which we live in the scriptures that uh, God has given us to date. So let's go through uh, again, who makes up the Magog Alliance? This is by way of review. Great to have the teens with us tonight. They can actually see who makes up the Magog Alliance. And so this is the Magog Alliance. Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Tagarmath, Gomer, Persia, Libya and Ethiopia say, well, what does that mean to me? Who, who are those countries today? Well, some of them have the same names now, but this is who they are now. And we can't say 100% 
that uh, without a doubt that Magog is Russia, but uh, unless another country moves into that area and takes over, that's who we have, that's who we're working with today uh, that occupies that land. It's, it's definitely uh, the land of Russia and Turkey, Iran, and Libya and Ethiopia. So that is the, that is the alliance. And what's noteworthy about the Magog alliance? Well, there's a lot of noteworthy things, but just two for our, for our purposes of study tonight. Um, it's multiple nations and peoples from the north, from the east, from the south, and from the west. But it's not the armies of the world, but it is, uh, it is from four different directions. So this alliance coming together does have elements coming from all four directions, north, east, south, and west. But it's primarily a non-Arab coalition. Now, why is that important? Well, Israel's surrounded by Arab nations. That's, that's their, their, border, their border countries around Israel are all Arab. Egypt, Syria, Jordan. Uh, well, Lebanon is, is part Arab and part non-Arab, but, uh, but all around the area there, and then a little farther away from Jordan. And we'll come back to that, and we'll take a look at uh, some things that uh, are interesting from a scriptural perspective of the nations that surround, because none of these nations that attack Israel are border nations. Does that make sense? None of them border Israel. They're coming from farther distances. Uh, Libya, you know, separated. You've got to go through Egypt to get over to Libya. Ethiopia, you've got to go through Egypt. Um, so none of these nations, you know, Iran is on the other side of Iraq, and of course Russia is up above Turks. And none of the nations border Israel today, and yet they come together as an alliance. This is the Magog alliance that we looked at last week. We talked about that area encompasses uh, Meshach, Tubal, Magog, which is modern-day Russia. Uh, we talked about Meshach, and it's similar to the name Moscow. Rosh, Prince of Rosh, similar to the name Russia. Uh, but again, that's, uh, that seems to be the ringleader because it says out of the far north. And we talked about the fact that Moscow and Israel, if you draw a straight line from Israel straight up, go straight due north from Israel, you almost hit Moscow with a direct hit. So Moscow, straight line down uh, to Israel. And then, if, and of course, you draw that straight line, it goes through Turkey. But there's the other nations. So you can see Libya, Ethiopia, Iran. And so you've got the north, east, south, and west kind of surrounded, but none of them are border countries. They're coming from those four directions, but not directly touching the nation of Israel. That's the alliance. Uh, when we were in Israel, I'll just give you some uh, looks of, you know, the northern border of Israel, uh, because the emphasis that the thrust of the attack comes from the north, even though there's other nations from the east, south, and west. And of course, the Russian contingent would be much bigger and stronger. Uh, you know, Ethiopia is not going to bring near as much to the table. <laughs> Libya is not going to bring near as much to the table. Iran would bring a lot, but they are not only west, but they're also north as well, and they would more than likely be coming with uh, the Russian contingent, which the scriptures refer as Gog, the leader, whoever the leader is, whoever is the, uh, the ruler that can, uh, pulls everyone together, and then Magog, the nation. But on the northern, uh, we're actually looking down uh, from here, that's looking directly into Syria from the Golan Heights. So uh, when we were in Israel, I took this picture, and I, 
you know, you take nine pastors. We take pictures for different reasons than other people take. We're taking pictures for future studies and stuff, you know. Uh, we did take some fun ones too, but I'm taking a look at this land. I'm, all I can think of is, is scriptures running in my head. All right, where does this all fit? But on the northern edge of the Golan Heights, that's looking directly into Syria. Uh, that's really hard to see because it got really hazy uh, over, and that's further into Syria. You can see the building um, and the, the road to Damascus right there. It really is the uh, ancient, you can still see the opening there, uh, the road to Damascus, but Damascus you can't see, but you can see the outskirts of other cities that are suburbs, if you will, uh, of Damascus. And then uh, this, is a, uh, this is a reinforced uh, military installation up there. Uh, Dr. Rush, you remember all this? is coming back to you. Yeah, we were up there and... Um, you know, Israel uh, took these installations from Syria when they won. Uh, you know, they won the Golan Heights um, and took that area. And and, uh, and today, that's that particular spot is more for tourism. But there's a lot of military presence all throughout the Golan Heights and similar high places. Uh, Israel, they call it the Eyes of Israel, so they're able to see uh, on all three. You know, you've got Lebanon in this direction, Syria. And then Jordan, they can see in all directions from that high place within the Golan Heights. And then that's Mount Hermon. And there's actually military, Israel has military installations inside the mountain. Uh, So deep within Mount Hermon is a lot of things that, uh, well, we have no idea all the things that are in there. But uh, they have deep military installations inside the mountain itself. And that's a high point, as you can see, snow-capped. And so this is the area that uh, no matter how this contingent comes down, they're going to have to come out of the north and they're going to have to come into this area. It's, it's a very tough area to overcome, but if you have a formidable military that has to have, you have to have air power, you're going to have to have a lot of the things that just a traditional ground force wouldn't be able to bring to the table. And so this force is going to have to have a a multifaceted approach because it really is, with the mountainous terrain and everything, a difficult proposition uh, to attack because Israel now holds the high ground, but the force that uh, that will be coming against Israel will be massive. I mean, you're talking about a multinational force and that will be attacking through this area and probably not just the north areas we, as well. Other places will be uh, attacked as well. Now, when will the attack on Israel take place? Well, we couldn't give a date, but we do have an understanding from the Scripture itself, right here in the text. Uh, if we look at last week's text, twice it mentions either the latter years or the latter days. It actually mentions latter years first and then latter days second, and I think that might even be significant as well because latter years would say that kind of, because it says when the people come back into the land... That says in the latter years, but then it says the attack will take place in the latter days, meaning the latter time, the people have to come into the land, that's a little further back out, then the attack takes place, that's even closer to the end, the latter days. So in the latter days, after Israel's been brought back into the land, I highlighted the land there because if you go to Israel, they refer to the nation as the land. Many people will only say, I'm leaving the land, especially the the people that have been there uh, grown up there. They just refer to, we're leaving the land or we're coming back to the land. They don't even say Israel. And uh, the Bible, uh, even, even in our text in 38, it says the land. 
Uh, so this, um, this will take place in the latter days. There's no doubt about the fact that Ezekiel 38 hasn't yet taken place. Somebody might tell, you know, come up with some scenario. No, this already took place. Some you know, uh, theologian that wants to take a stab at it that already happened. No, this will take place in the latter days. And we've never seen this uh, alliance of nations before either. So it has to take place in the latter days, which hasn't taken place yet. Now, what about other prophetic wars and attacks on Israel? Because Jesus said, well, that's why we started Matthew 24, he said there would be wars, plural, and rumors of wars, plural. Now, remember that sometimes God will say something and it can cover a lot of time and space, but also can cover a lot of complexity. When Jesus says there will be wars and rumors of wars, he said in the latter days these things would take place. Now you think, World War II is not an afterthought, but there's nowhere in the Bible mentions World War II. It's just lumped in there with what? Wars. It was a massive war. You know, 50 million plus people that died, and it's not an afterthought, but the Bible never says anything about World War II. There's not even a specific mention of the Third Reich or uh, the Japanese emperor or anything like that. And it was a massive event in the history of the world, and yet it's just lumped in there with wars. That should give you some indication that when God gets specific on something, you really want to take notice. What is this going to be like? What, if World War II is just, not, it's just a blip in the, in the last days, if it is in the last days, I believe that it is, but because I really believe we've been in the last days since Israel became a nation in 1948. And that's just on the tails of... Now notice that um, there's big wars attached to Israel. Because, there's a huge war, Holocaust, and Israel becomes a nation. Israel's involved in like beginning and ending of things. Get back to that in just a minute, too. So, when will this take place? And what about other prophetic wars and and that Israel's involved wars that Israel's involved in and attacks on Israel that also the Bible makes mention of that we could be looking at in our lifetime? Well, we have the Psalm eighty-three coalition, and we have the Isaiah seventeen conflict with Syria. The Syria and a conflict seem remotely possible. With Israel. Considering they border Israel, yes, and considering that ISIS has a portion of, of Israel, then we have Russia and their involvement with Syria. Now, there's so many combinations, this Rubik's Cube, no one can tell you exactly how these things unfold, but we know the players. We know which chess pieces to be watching, right? That's the, that's the point. We don't know exactly how it all works, but we know who it involves to a great extent. And then we can look at some other, other things that are taking place. So the Psalm 83 coalition, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read you real quick. Just uh, the Psalm 83 coalition, it talks about, I'm not going to read the nations, but it says, Behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. Uh, and basically it says in verse 5, They've consulted together in one consent to form a confederacy against you. Now, uh, the Lord... Uh, in verse 13 it says, My, uh, O God, make them like whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the woods and the flames set the mountains on fire. You can see just a 
you could imagine like a nuclear detonation just you ever seen when it detonates the fire just it's this, this hot wind that makes entire forests just fall down like twigs and something of that nature is described in uh and is and i'm sorry in uh, psalm 83 so the, the, the co- this is the coalition that's mentioned in Psalm 83. We're taking a step away from Ezekiel for a second, and it'll make sense why we're doing that, because Ezekiel's coalition should not be confused with the Psalm 83 coalition. The Psalm 83 coalition are these nations here, and you can see they involve any of the colored areas. And you've got Lebanon, you've got Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, no, I'm sorry, not Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, anything in the uh, colored here. But also mentioned is Iraq. Now Iraq's not part of the Ezekiel 38 coalition. As that, Iraq is part of the Psalm 83 coalition. Totally different group, two, two completely different groups. Russia's not in this, Ethiopia's not in this, Libya's not in this, Iran's not in this. This coalition is the complete opposite of Ezekiel 38. Why? Because most of these nations do border Israel. Not all of them. Iraq doesn't. But parts of Jordan, parts... And then we see Philistia, which is the Palestinian conflict. If the Palestinians today, all of these areas, Gaza Strip, West Bank, parts of Syria... But also, because parts of Syria are included with this part of Syria, all this was Assyria. And so you have this coalition in Psalm 83 comes against Israel at some point in time. And again, we don't have a historical context that this kind of coalition ever happened before. Not of these nations. There's different coalitions, but we don't have a a context that says that Psalm 83 has happened in the past which leads us to believe that it still is yet to take place. And these nations are all around the area. So what do they look like? Well, these nations are all in the box here. I showed this, uh, um, I don't know, I did some other study with you guys, and I showed this before, but uh, bringing it back here to show you that the, uh, the Psalm 83 coalition is inside of this box here, Whereas the Ezekiel 38 coalition is all outside of that box, right? Much further, they're coming from the farthest points in the north. They're coming from way over in Iran. They're coming from way over in Libya. They're coming way down to Ethiopia. So two completely different contingents. Russia would still be up here. Turkey's above it. So none of those nations are involved. But notice that the vast majority of the Psalm 83 coalition, most of it are Arab it's like 90% Arab and 90% Sunni Muslim. Whereas the, the opposite is generally true of the other coalition. It is predominantly not, well, it's almost completely non-Arab. Uh, there are Arab, quite a few Arab people in Libya. But other than Libya, the rest of those countries are non-Arab countries. And Libya is the only one that is Sunni. Now, it's interesting because coalitions historically, and this will always be the way, they never fit a 100% definition, right? In other words, it won't be 100% Sunni, 100% Shiite. There's some other little mix-ups on both sides that can involve money, 
culture, some specific thing, and and maybe God does these things just to keep everybody guessing. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the Psalm 83 coalition is predominantly Arab and predominantly Sunni, but not 100% Arab and not 100% Sunni, but predominantly. And they also are all bordering, for the most part, uh, with a little bit of exception, uh, Israel. So that coalition has to, at some point, come against Israel, I believe, and others do as well that have studied the Scriptures. That coalition at some point has to also come against Israel, but separately. So here's a possible timeline. And again, I'm not telling you that this is a way uh, it'll all happen, because you also have, and I don't have time to cover tonight, go read Isaiah 17 and the burden against Damascus. Damascus has to be destroyed. Israel seems to suffer Um, The way Isaiah 17 goes down is Israel uh, gets in a conflict, and it seems to be with Syria. Damascus is completely made an ash heap in one day. Gone. The oldest city in the world will be reduced to rubble, completely demolished. And Israel seems to suffer from that as well, especially in the northern parts of Israel. It says that olive trees don't grow as much after that, that there's a period of time that they... The northern part of Israel seems to suffer from a vegetation standpoint, almost like a financial recession as well. And what I look at that, if you study it, then you see what happens at the end. Israel's attacked again at the end of 17, and that, it seems that God rises up to their defense at the end of Isaiah 17, and that enemy is, is, is distinguished quickly, which fits very well with Ezekiel 38. So take a look at it. It's just a possible timeline. I'm not telling you uh, this is... But here's where we are today. Israel is in relative peace. I'll give the other folks a chance over here. Israel's in relative peace today. But then um, after you have Israel in relative peace, you have potentially the Psalm 83 coalition. This would be the Arab nations coming against Israel but being soundly defeated. Picture Damascus being incinerated by a nuclear weapon and Israel defeating all of their enemies rather quickly because God gives them a great victory. But you also then, you know, Damascus is destroyed, would be in that same period here. And then you have Israel um, would have to, after that, would have to go through a period of re-strengthening, rebuilding the northern part of Israel because if they were in a hot war, uh, with ISIS or with uh, with all those nations, and they and they suffered a lot of blows to the northern part of the country. And if if there was nuclear fallout, and the the, the plants and the orange groves and all the things that would actually suffer from that, uh, a period of restrengthening. But then somehow Israel, like they always do for thousands of years, rebound back to full strength again. And it looks like the world's finally going to give them give them a break. That brings us back to Ezekiel 38, because it does look like the world's going to finally give them a break. But no, this leader from the north might say, now, I'll step in. So again, how it all works timeline-wise, I'm not telling you that uh, this, I'm just saying this is a possible when you, you can do your own study and study Isaiah 17 and study Psalm 83 and study Ezekiel 38 and 39 and study the entire book of, especially the last three or four chapters of Daniel, and study the Olivet Discourse, and study the book of Revelation. 
and start to see how does the Olivet Discourse, how does it align with these things, because Jesus gives us a flow. And what we're to understand as prophecy students is not the exacts, but to understand who's involved. We know Israel's involved in each of these, right? Poor Israel, they're at, the, <laughs> they're at the center of the... But why are they at the center? Well, God is still drawing them to Himself. We talked about that last week. Uh, God is going to continue to draw Israel to a place of repentance. And these things will bring about uh, changing the heart. Now, who is Gog? Let's shift gears for our last few minutes together tonight. Who is Gog? Some believe, if you study, if you go out and you read different writings, some believe he's the Antichrist. There's, have you ever read that, anyone, that Gog is the Antichrist? So you'll actually see uh, good, solid prophecy teachers. The good thing about uh, Christians is uh, uh, we're saved only by the blood of Jesus and the grace, and we can actually have some disagreements in areas that are non-essential to the faith. You know, if you believe Gog is the Antichrist, we can still fellowship together. You can be wrong if you want to be wrong. But anyway, <laughs> now I don't believe, uh, is he the Antichrist? I say not likely. And not because I'm some foremost authority. Uh, I'm a, just a pastor in Richmond, Virginia. But uh, there are plenty of things you could look at where I don't believe Gog is the Antichrist. And throughout history, again, there's been, there's been leaders that have had a massive impact in the world, but they're not the Antichrist. Uh, Adolf Hitler had a tremendous, wicked impact on the world. We talked about people like him and Nero and Genghis Khan and Napoleon and Alexander the Great and all of them have had big impacts on the world and and very negative impacts and millions and thousands have died and yet none of those men were the Antichrist. They were all forerunners and then the more kind of anti-God they were, the more forerunner they were. So Gog though, uh, he certainly is a man with great pride and a massive ego, and a desire to take all that he can from Israel. But I don't believe he's just going after Israel. I believe this is someone who wants to control the entire Middle East region. But Israel is the crown jewel of the Middle East. Not only the crown jewel, but it actually, as we talked about, has the things the other nations don't have. The breadbasket, the greenery. And it also so happens to be that the other members of the alliance, well, they hate Israel for their own reasons. We talked about that last week. Iran hates Israel. Turkey has been an ally in the past, but Turkey is uh, going the other direction. And Turkey actually uh, has been staunch about Israel giving all the land over to the Palestinians, and uh, really uh, Turkey's becoming very anti-Israel. But Iran, of course, we know their intentions uh, to drive Israel into the Mediterranean. And Gog is going to somehow use the agitation of these other nations to actually galvanize them under him. But who is he? Is he the Antichrist? I don't believe so. Now, again, I'm not saying Vladimir Putin is Gog. But he could be, and he may not be. Vladimir Putin could die tomorrow, and a guy ten times worse could ascend to his, and we would have thought, and we thought Putin was bad. Now, this is the way the end of the world's going to go, because just when you thought you've seen the worst guy, another one comes along that is going to take it to another level. But I mean, it might not, might, not, might not always be visible at first blush, but over time they'll reveal their colors. But nevertheless, he is Gog-like in the sense that he has a big ego. 
He's already stated that he wants, you know, he wants to unify the former Soviet Union. He wants Georgia back. He wants the Ukraine back. He already took Crimea back, right? He wants Kazakhstan back. Those were, in his mind, those were all parts of Mother Russia and all must be returned to the rightful place. So a man like him, I'm not saying Vladimir Putin's him, but a man like him would not only want to take back what he believes belongs to him, but as all the past conquerors did, they not only took what they thought belonged to them, they took what belonged to others too. They wanted other nations. And that was Hitler. Hitler, he wanted Poland. He wanted France. He wanted Russia. Right? Why? Because he wanted to rule the world. It wasn't just about money. And so this leader will be strong. He'll be military-minded. Very military-minded leader. Of course, Vladimir Putin is a very military-minded man. He's not the only military-minded man, but he's got that kind of profile. So somebody, again, that has military on their mind uh, and really thinks strategically in that manner. But the Antichrist, well, he'll not just be a great military leader. Oh no. He'll be an economic genius. Far more than just military. He'll be a diplomatic genius. No one will ever, no one will ever have words that soothe over and smooth over other leaders one after one, fall like domino. He'll convince the world's ten regions. At some point, the world's going to be divided into ten regions. He'll convince the ten rulers of ten regions to give all their power to him. Not four nations. I don't know if you, I mean, no disrespect to Iran, Libya, and Ethiopia, but they are not the epicenter of the world, those, four, uh, those three countries, Turkey being the fourth. But those countries, you know, they have something that they could gain together, but they're not the kingdoms of the world. No, the Antichrist will galvanize not just that kind of regional power, but all the world's global powers, all of them. And of course, he'll be a great military mind as well. He'll be empowered by Satan himself. So he will have uh, all of the forces of Satan uh, behind him. Now, Gog is evil too. But again, I don't believe that he rises to the level of being the Antichrist for some other reasons. So let's take a look at some of them. Uh, the Antichrist, he brokers a peace agreement with Israel. And he start, it's going to be a seven-year agreement. It's going to break it in the middle of the seven years. Well, Gog, he just goes straight for attack. Not broken any agreement. He's just coming right in, uh, attacks Israel. Uh, the Antichrist will galvanize all the nations of the world. But, you know, in Gog, he now galvanizes a few regional nations, mostly to the north, all within. I, I put it this way: all within, not a bad flight to Israel. You can fly from any of those four areas and get to Israel rather quickly. Mount Moscow to Israel is like a, can you believe it? Moscow to Israel is like a two and a half, three hour flight, I think, max. Not, I mean, and, and none of the flights are that bad from that area. But that's not the Antichrist. He's, he's got time zones all over the world that he's galvanizing together. Now we've got uh, the Antichrist is defeated at the end of the seven year tribulation. End of seven year tribulation. Gog, well, he's defeated. He's defeated at the beginning of a seven-year period because weapons are burned for how many years? Seven years. At the beginning of a seven-year period. The Antichrist is defeated at the end of the seven-year tribulation and uh, the Antichrist is not killed on the mountains of Israel. Did you know that? 
No, he's captured alive, book of Revelation. He's captured alive and thrown alive into the lake of fire with the false prophet. Everyone else is killed at the battle of Armageddon, but the Antichrist, false prophet, are captured alive. Gog is killed and devoured on the mountains of Israel. To me, you do some investigative journalism, they cannot be the same individual. And I, it's the only time that God, there's nowhere else that Gog's title is ever given. That's the Antichrist. I think it's two different uh, people. And we can see other things as well. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, um, don't have time to read all of this. We're just rushing through these things tonight, but giving you a high-level overview of these things. But in Revelation 6, we see the seals are the first, um, the seals, the bowls, and we have the vile judgments in the, in the book of Revelation. And the first and second seal, it says, when I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse and him who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given. And he went out conquering and to conquer. I believe, and most people believe that's the Antichrist. But there's someone else uh, here in, in verses 3 and 4. And when I saw an open second seal, I heard the second living creature and come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. It was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that the people should kill one another and it was given to him a great sword. Now you go on and read the rest of the seals and they match up with a lot of what Jesus uh, is saying there in Matthew chapter 24. Additionally, there's a great seismic earthquake uh, that starts when the sixth seal is opened in uh, Revelation 6 and all the kings of the earth and all the mighty men hide themselves. But that's at the very beginning. There's still, there's still unbelievable destruction that's coming and even up to a quarter of the world dies during that time. All that could take place centered right around what takes place right here with Gog and Magog which sets the world on fire only to cool down and the Antichrist who would already be waiting in the wings already uh, Daniel chapter um, let's see, is it Daniel 11 or 10? No, Daniel 10. Uh, you know, he, he's already through intrigue and very stealthily building alliances and he will come to power very rapidly at some point before he shows his military might. But again, if Gog and Magog have already gone before and, ignit, and lit the match of all of this global destruction, then we would see uh, some of the things that uh, are taking place in Revelation 6 those things would make sense that you could actually have the white horse and this fiery red horse that ignites the war, but the white horse would still look like the answer to the problems. In other words, the Antichrist, what, the reason why the Antichrist would be so attractive is the world will be so chaotic and such in bad shape that they'll all want someone to take over and fix it all up because of what has taken place. So Gog versus the Antichrist. Well, what's God's response? We go back to our text in Ezekiel. Um, for whatever reason, uh, God spells out specific judgment. And this, um, I believe, again, if you look at the, go back to the timeline, the tribulation could start with a massive war and global earthquake 
And guess what? It would finish with the war to end all wars and a massive earthquake. You notice that? That if Gog and Magog is at the beginning and Armageddon and the Antichrist are at the end, you have the kickstart of the implosion of God comes down, then God comes down and defends Israel. Israel is thanking God that they have been rescued from Gog. But they don't ever want to see this ever happen again. And they will sign peace at any price. Even though God's their deliverer, they still wouldn't have fully yielded. What is God's response? Uh, Verse 18, when God comes against the land of Israel, my fury will show in my face, my jealousy. Uh, And that day, he sends a great earthquake. What God does is looks like some of the things that we see in the Old Testament, where all these armies, it's a multitude of things happening at one time. The soldiers turn against each other. Fire and brimstone is knocking like planes out of the sky, destroying uh, the army itself. An earthquake is swallowing up. It's a combination of many of the things that we see that God has done throughout the Old Testament, all kind of converging. And when it's all said and done, all of Gog's massive army is a smoldering mess all laying there. And we're talking thousands of bodies because it talks about the fact that the birds will devour the flesh. But this isn't Armageddon. This is all on the mountains of Israel, all around, even kind of coming in on the borders, if you will. And Gog himself says, of, uh, "Gog himself, that he will, uh, he himself will be devoured as well. I'll give you to the birds, the prey, and every sort of beast of the field to be devoured." Well, what does it mean to the world? We know that the Magog-Gog alliance is destroyed. We know that Israel is saved, at least for that day, from being destroyed because God comes to their defense, supernatural. Israel doesn't even get a chance uh, uh, to defend itself. And even if it had a chance to defend itself, it looks like it's vastly outmanned and God does all the work for them. But The whole world feels the shaking of this moment because it is a global earthquake, it appears to be. It is something that captures everybody's attention. It is something that many other people perish, not just the armies of Magog. Maybe you've read it in the past and you think, well, this is just the armies of Magog fall. No, there is going to be things all over the world with this beginning, and this is what it would kind of look like. Yes, Gog and Magog are destroyed. But it would spawn the shaking that takes place there that day. As God shows his fury to the world, what should it do? Well, it should cause people to look to the scriptures. But again, if it's at the front end of the tribulation, instead of looking to the scriptures, the world still will look to a man. Look to a man. Who can rebuild Tokyo? Who can rebuild Paris? Who can actually broker peace in the Middle East? Because so, what they will say is, Man, this is this is happening going six day war. Psalm they won't call it Psalm eighty three coalition war, but they'll you know whatever name it will have. The Damascus Syria conflict now Magog and all this stuff. And they're like, what can we do? And of course, maybe it's all climate change, right? Now someone will throw that in there too. That that's why that's why it all quaked at that time because it was probably from fracking or something. 
So it'll actually have a global impact. But what it should do is cause the people of the world to open up a Bible, whether this is just before the tribulation or just after it starts. We don't know where the timeline falls, but we know this for certain. God will be glorified. Israel will begin to turn to the Lord. I also believe this is a defining moment where Israel, after the attack on Gog and Magog, it's very plausible that this would be finally Israel say, that's it. We are rebuilding the temple in honor of our God who saved us from Gog and Magog. Now the temple has to be rebuilt for the Antichrist to enter it. Understand that all these things have to, they have to set the stage. There has to be some reason where the world, and no longer if the Psalm 83 coalition is taken out of the way, and the Gog-Magog coalition is taken out of the way, then there's no one to say, you can't build your temple anymore. You'll actually have a world leader that would say, go ahead and build it. And I'd like to broker a peace agreement so all of this never happens again. But worse, and over the next seven years, all that will happen, and worse, to the place that even every island will be moved out of its place. And so all these things, even though cataclysmic as it is, and again, read Revelation 6, the beginning, just the first six seals, up to a quarter of the world's population. Three, three quarters are still left, so the rest of the people say, whew, That'll never happen again, but it does. At the end of the tribulation, it's worse. Hard to believe. But God is using these things uh, to put in place. Again, I believe uh, this may have some direct impact on what Israel uh, does as far as turning back the Lord. Maybe it involves the temple again. But all this would come after they're defeated. Um, this was just, again, uh, I just put this in here just so you see uh, just the mountains. It says that uh, you'll lie on the mountains of Israel. Um, and as these nations come in and they fall, you can see that you've got mountain ridge here, mountain ridge here, that Israel will then take as the weaponry and the bodies and everything are laying there. Then you have this seven-year period where they're taking all this weaponry that is on the mountains, and using it as fuel, Israel will come up with some ingenious way to take, instead of wasting fuel, they'll actually take all that weaponry, according to the text that we just read, they'll take it and actually burn it as fuel for seven years. Interesting, seven years. It could be the entire tribulation period. It could could be. I'm not saying that it is, but uh, we've got that seven-year period. But it says that on the mountains of Israel, every... uh, The birds will be doing their part, and we get to next week, uh, there has to be the burial and the cleansing, Uh, but even after that, what what I believe, and we'll look at verses 17 through 20, comes the final battle, and that would be Armageddon. So, we'll come to a close here. What is our response to these things? Well, you know, Peter Peter said when you see these things taking place, that they should have a purifying work in our life, Right? That uh, we, we should be able to see prophecy again through the lens that, that we looked at on Sunday. That ultimately, prophecy isn't for us just to know stuff. Jesus said to be doing my business until I return. Not doing works that get us to, to 
to heaven because our works aren't going to get us to heaven. I've said before, and I'll say it a million times before I die, the best day I've ever had on earth is still filthy rags. How about yours? That's what the Bible says, that even our righteousness is filthy rags. But the knowledge that the Lord really is going to come, you know, we look at these things and, uh, you know, just this week, um, Iran, what, captured 10 of our Navy sailors. I mean, you know, I don't know how clear it has to be that we are on two, two sides of the table. And Iran and what's taking place in Syria and what's taking place in the Middle East, we know that all these things could come very rapidly. And understand that even I looked at, when I showed you that timeline, there does not have to be massive gaps in those things. Do you realize that because of technology today, um, there could actually, Israel could suffer greatly, let's say from the Psalm 83 coalition, and they could actually rebuild rather quickly. Because Isaiah 17 seems to indicate that not only do they kind of rebound from whatever took place with, uh, with Syria, but they rebound from it and they begin to flourish again before something else happens and then that enemy is defeated rather quickly, which again is what I believe is Ezekiel 38, 39. And I could be wrong, I'm just saying when we look at the Scriptures, these things are just clues and we will know more as time goes on, but the thing is that these things could happen in rapid succession. Some of the trigger men, if you will, may be living right now. (laughs) That God could say, "All right, now I'm going to take the hooks, now I'm going to start to pull them together, and these things could take place in our lifetime. But even if they don't take place in our lifetime... Jesus still said be ready because he can still come for you individually or me individually any day, can he? And that's the point about being ready, doing business. I'm called to do business until he comes for me personally. Could be 65, could be 85. Uh, We don't know, but uh, these things should have a transformational effect on our life. That uh, What we studied on Sunday, that we say, Lord, I want you to be gaining interest on my life. I want to be able to share these things. But you know, I'm not doomsday. I, I still uh, love that God has given us today to enjoy our family and our friends, but we still need to know these things so we can explain them to other people. When they're not, they're, they have understand, no understanding of what's going on, we have a reason for the hope that lies within us and we can explain, hey, have you ever read for yourself? Just ask people to read them themselves. Say, read these things and what do you think? Maybe you can answer some questions for him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, uh, we don't know exactly what's unfolding, but we do know, uh, Lord, many of the things that you've made clear. uh, We know that you are going to bring uh, your nation, your people, Israel, to a place of humbling themselves. And Lord, we know that you're going to judge nations that uh, have revolted against you and judge nations that Uh, have come against uh, the nation of Israel. But we also know, know, Lord, that you are going to reward and you are going to bring home to be with you all those that stay faithful to the end. And Lord, we pray that we would be those that would stay faithful to the end, that we'd be doing your business, the business of loving, the business of caring, the business of serving uh, one another, but also, Lord, also reaching out to a world that is still in darkness We pray that you would use these things, Lord, uh, even when they come about, that you would bring millions of Muslims to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, when they see that uh, the true and living God is greater uh, 
than the false gods of this world. Lord, we pray that you would use these things to bring atheists and communists and all the things that will come about when you bring Ezekiel 38 and 39 to fruition, that you would bring Jews and Gentiles to a place of repentance. Lord, this is your desire. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Lord, we pray that uh, we just continue to pray towards these things. We pray for revival and our nation, that the gospel will be preached in all the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you are dismissed, and we'll finish chapter 38. And the end of 38 uh, is some happier times. So we'll, um, <laughs> we'll look at that uh, next time we're together. I'm sorry, end of 39, not 38.